Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about a true crime podcast I love. It's hosted by Emily. She is incredibly respectful and detailed in the stories she tells. Here is a trailer. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. My son took it and it's like, I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. After there was still no answer at the door, Mary decided to enter the house and as she did, she noticed it to be eerily quiet. As she got further into the hallway, she noticed a dark figure lying on the floor and as she got closer, she noticed Robert was lying face down with his head caved in. This is Red Rump a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 26, Robert Samuels. Robert Samuels was living in Bahama Street in Northridge, California in the 1980s. Northridge is known for offering an urban feel to the people who live there whilst also offering a number of open parks and coffee shops. The neighbourhood is mainly home to young professionals who tend to be quite liberal. The affluent neighbourhood has always been known for its luxury living, and in 2020, the average price of a house was just under half a million dollars, around 160% higher than the US average. The average income is also higher than average, coming in around $77,000, around 41% higher than the US average. Robert was living alone at this point, but he was on good terms with his wife, who he was separated from, Mary Ellen. The two had known each other since school and were neighbours. Robert had always liked Mary. However, the two didn't actually start dating until many years later and in fact, lost touch altogether as Mary Ellen met and married another man with whom she had a daughter, Nicole. The relationship, however, didn't last, and it wasn't long after Mary split with her then-husband that she and Robert started dating. Robert had been infatuated with Mary since their school days and took her into his home with open arms. He also welcomed and loved her daughter Nicole as if she were his own. She began to call him dad and he adopted her, 
the three became a tight-knit family unit. Nicole went to a high school nearby, and while she was there sometime in early 1986, she met James Bernstein. The two attended the same party where they had mutual friends one evening, and immediately hit it off. Nicole introduced James to her mother and Robert, initially as a friend, but the friendship soon developed into a romantic relationship. Robert and Mary liked James and actually offered him a job at the subway store the couple co-owned as a means of earning a little extra money. Mary also worked at the subway store daily and the couple employed a number of people to work for them there as well because Robert was usually busy working at his main job as a camera assistant. By the mid-1980s, Robert had worked on some incredibly successful and well-known films, such as Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Heaven Can Wait. Unfortunately, the couple were struggling to juggle their busy lives and relationship, and in 1986, after much consideration, decided to separate. Robert and Mary remained married but did start divorce proceedings. However, they were in no rush because they actually had ended things on fairly good terms and Robert still had a close relationship with Mary's daughter Nicole. Things began to settle down over the next two years and by all accounts, Robert was happy. He was living in his dream location in Northridge, had a good relationship with his wife and daughter even though they were separated, and was working his dream job in the camera department of some of Hollywood's biggest films at the time. He had his sights set on climbing the star-studded ladder and continue working on bigger and bigger films. The industry was difficult and competitive, but he was determined and knew he could do it. On the 9th of December 1988, Mary and her daughter Nicole made their way to Robert's home. They were no longer living with him, but they had a good relationship and still shared the family dog. Mary was dropping the dog off before heading out with Nicole. She knocked on the door and waited. She was becoming agitated when there was no answer. Robert would always be on time, and she had called him a number of times, but received no answer. She'd left messages on his answering machine regarding times for dropping off the dog. After there was still no answer at the door, Mary decided to enter the house, and as she did, she noticed it to be eerily quiet. As she got further into the hallway, she noticed a dark figure lying on the floor, and as she got closer, she noticed that Robert was lying face down, His head was caved in. The surrounding walls and carpets were covered with blood. Mary immediately called emergency services and the Los Angeles Fire Department responded. When they entered the home, they determined that Robert had been dead for a number of hours. Further examination showed that he had been dead for over 12 hours. It appeared he had been about to walk into the room with the tanning bed when he was struck on the head. This sort of stunned him and caused him to fall to the floor. 
The killer then placed a pillow over his head and shot him with a 16-gauge shotgun, execution style in the back of the head. He died immediately. The autopsy determined that, although the shotgun wound had been the ultimate cause of his death, the blunt force trauma he suffered from being struck just moments before was a contributing factor to his death. Officers noticed the area around Robert's body showed signs of a struggle. However, there were no signs of burglary or forced entry. Officers, of course, questioned Mary as a means of eliminating her. She told them she and Robert had a good relationship and she was actually hopeful that they would eventually get back together. A few days after the shooting, detectives visited Mary at the subway store and asked if she could give them a list of all of their employees, which she agreed to, as well as asking if she would do a polygraph, to which she also agreed. During the polygraph, she was asked if she knew who had killed her husband. She answered no. She was also asked if she participated in the killing of her husband, to which she answered no. She passed the polygraph test with no problems. Officers then confirmed Mary's alibi for the previous 12 to 24 hours and tested both Mary and Nicole for gunshot residue, and both were found to be negative. Mary agreed to give officers a list of anyone she thought may want to harm Robert. Officers did go door to door to ask neighbours if they had seen or heard anything, but due to the secluded nature of the neighbourhood Robert's house was in, there were no witnesses. Detectives also couldn't find any foreign DNA, hair or fibre evidence. As soon as Mary's best friend, Anne Hamley, heard about Robert's death, she rushed to the house and consoled Mary as best she could. She had known Robert and therefore was also interviewed by police to see if she may know anything that could help, but unfortunately, she couldn't give any information about the crime. The residents of Northridge were becoming nervous at the fact no one had been arrested in connection with Robert's murder. People were desperate to know a suspect was in custody and to feel safe again. Police did soon narrow in on a potential suspect. Someone no one would ever have suspected could kill in cold blood. Former police officer James Nowlin, who had been a reserve officer at Costa Mesa Police Department, had been in some kind of a relationship with Mary Ellen Samuels before Robert's death. It was well known that he had a temper and a tendency to be jealous and violent. On further investigation, it was discovered that he also owned a number of shotguns and had actually been suspended from the Costa Mesa Reserve Police Program because during an argument with his wife, he had fired the handgun and then lied about it. A police officer also reported that James Nowlin's girlfriend had told him about a time when James had said he'd done, quote, something very bad and that he could go to prison for a long time. He added that he'd also been told James had asked that girlfriend to give him an alibi for the time Robert was murdered. 
Further suspicion arose when it was revealed that James had reconciled with his wife on the day that Robert's body was discovered. However, after thorough investigation into the alibi given, as well as the casual nature of the sexual relationship James and Mary had had, it was concluded that former police officer James Nowlin should be eliminated as a suspect. Although both Mary and Nicole's alibis had checked out, and they had been tested to show no evidence of GSR, officers looked more deeply into the months and years leading to Robert's murder, and suspicion once again fell on Mary. It was discovered that on the 31st of October, just a month before Robert was killed, he had actually gone to his divorce attorney's office and signed a document seeking to change elements of his divorce agreement. Robert wanted to run the subway store because due to the freelance nature of his camera work, at that time at least, he was actually unemployed and felt he would be better at running the business given the extra time he had. As well as this, he could no longer afford the $1,200 monthly payment of spousal support and so opted to reduce that amount. However, the divorce attorney was still waiting on a portion of the paperwork to be completed by Robert at the time of his death, so the modification was never actually filed. Mary also began to act in a way that close friends and family of Robert found unusual immediately following his death. The life insurance policy and the inheritance meant that Mary was entitled to almost $600,000 and with that money, Mary decided to live quite the lavish lifestyle. She had a lot of money and it seemed she wanted people to know. Mary spent $50,000 on a new Porsche, bought customised boutique clothing from a store called Trashy Lingerie, a fur coat, a car phone, and a 30-inch television. In the late 1980s, this was an extremely extravagant buy. She also bought her friend Dave Groover some expensive scuba equipment and arranged for a group of her friends to go on expensive trips to Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Cancun in Mexico. She later threw a huge birthday party for herself at a country club, making sure she had the most luxury travel, arranging for her and her friends to arrive by limousine. She also took a trip to Mexico and purchased a property over there to use as a second home. It was later discovered that the friend Dave Groover, who she had bought the scuba equipment for, ran a production company called Groover Productions, where Mary invested a large amount of money in. It was also alleged that she and David were involved in a romantic relationship just months after the tragic murder of her husband. Needless to say, the evidence against Mary being callous and altogether seemingly indifferent to her husband's death was clear. However, it didn't prove murder. She had passed the polygraph test, she had a solid alibi for the night of the murder, and she even left phone messages on Robert's answering machine about dropping off the dog, 
something, she argued, she wouldn't do if she had any knowledge he wouldn't be alive to receive them. Over the following few weeks and months, and with no fresh evidence, the case went cold. One day, however, all of that changed when the lead investigator, Detective Daly, received an anonymous call which said that a man called Mike Silver had been hired as a hitman to kill Robert Samuels. That was it. The missing piece of the puzzle that had caused the case to go cold had finally been revealed. As officers looked into this claim further, the caller revealed the shocking news that the person who had hired the hitman wasn't Mary. It was James Bernstein, Nicole's boyfriend and employee at the subway store Mary and Robert owned. Detectives realised that after they had asked Mary to provide them with a list of employees from the subway store, James Bernstein hadn't been included. Officers eventually identified the anonymous caller as David Navarro. David was questioned and gave some details about his knowledge and in turn his relationship with James and the entire family of Nicole, Mary and Robert. David told officers that his girlfriend introduced him to Nicole Samuels and James Bernstein in February of 1989, a few months after Robert's murder. David and James quickly became friends and discovered they had a mutual interest in selling drugs. One afternoon in June of 1989, David and his girlfriend had been in a car with James when his phone went off. James told David to go to a nearby gas station. He then told David and his girlfriend to hide whilst he dealt with something. David then saw James walk across the lot and speak to another driver. When James returned, he told David that the man was Mike Silver and he was the one who had killed Robert. When David returned home, he called the police and informed them that he had the phone number and name of the hitman used in the attack. He said he had managed to get it when James had received a page from Mike and then mentioned it was the quote hitman. David told officers that James had said quote he had done it and Mike had helped him unquote. He also said that James told him he paid Mike in cocaine in lieu of some of the money. Officers called in at James's apartment in May of 1989 and told him it was in connection with the murder of Robert Samuels. Officers asked James to come in for an interview, but he denied any wrongdoing or any knowledge of Robert's murder. By this point, Mary was becoming extremely upset by the constant allegations being thrown at her and her extended family, so decided to file a complaint against Detective Daly. The complaint was filed, however the investigation did continue. Detective Daly managed to locate Mike Silver, got a warrant to search his house and brought him in for questioning. Meanwhile, James had begun to exhibit some questionable behaviour. 
David said it was because he was nervous about the police presence and the fact they were beginning to ask questions and seemed to know a lot. In the meantime, Mike was released on bail. In June of 1989, Mary suggested that James should move in with her friend and neighbour, Anne Hamley, and her partner, Paul. James was already friends with Anne and Paul, so agreed, and told his landlord he was moving out of town to avoid the police. On the morning of the 27th of June 1989, Paul met his friend Daryl in a local bar and the pair started drinking. A little while later, the two of them went to meet James and told him they wanted to go to a nearby area called Fraser Park, where they knew some drug dealers would be hanging around and they wanted to rob them. James was initially a little unsure about it, but after being given some more information, he soon agreed to the plan. And just after 7pm that evening, Daryl arrived at Paul and James's house to meet them both. Paul, Daryl and James borrowed Mary's car as she lived nearby and made their way out to Fraser Park. Around 40 minutes later, the group drove up a dirt road that was dingy and seemed isolated. But as it was dark by this point, it was difficult to tell. Moments later, James looked around and noticed several dogs coming out and running towards the car. Daryl told Paul to back up and get out of the driveway quickly. Paul placed the car in reverse and drove away. Around 10 minutes later, the car was on another dirt road which actually seemed isolated this time. Daryl shouted, quote, Now! And Paul responded by slamming on the brakes, putting the car into park and turning off the headlights. Daryl then grabbed James from behind and began to choke him. James tried to scream and shout, so Paul hit him twice on the side of the head. In the midst of the panic and frustration, Paul accidentally hit Daryl, which caused Daryl to lose his grip on James. James took that chance and managed to open the door and jump out. Daryl, however, chased after him and managed to intercept him just as he found his feet and began to run. He wrestled James to the floor and Paul grabbed a hold of James's legs. Daryl began to strangle him again, but James did manage to splutter out, quote, why? Paul replied that it was because he talked too much. As James began to lose all the fight he had left in him, Paul let go of his legs and moved up to help Daryl finish strangling him. After around five minutes, James stopped struggling. Paul needed to be sure James was dead, so actually put his ear to James's chest to listen for a heartbeat. When he confirmed there wasn't one, the pair dragged James's body back over to the car and onto the back seat. Daryl got into the driver's side and Paul into the passenger's seat. The pair drove further onto a darker, abandoned area of the road. Just before they parked up, Paul noticed James's belt had his name on it, so decided to remove it. 
Once they arrived at a nearby cliff edge, Paul threw James's belt over the edge and then his pager. The pair pulled James's body out of the car and dragged it up to the nearby embankment, which was fairly concealed. They then drove back to the house which Paul lived in with his partner Anne Hamley and told her what they'd done. After hearing the news of James's murder, Anne picked up the phone and dialed a number. But Anne wasn't calling the police. She was calling Mary, who was holidaying in Cancun in Mexico. She was calling to tell her that James was dead. They had finally done what Mary had ordered them to do. Anne used a code to confirm that all had gone to plan and the men had killed James. The pair had previously agreed that Anne would call Mary, and if all had gone to plan, she would say she had spoken to her sister, and in turn this was confirmation that she could safely return from Mexico. It turned out that towards the end of June 1989, James had become so guilt-ridden and worried about the police finding out about him hiring Mike Silver to kill Robert. He had decided to go to the police himself and admit what he knew. He told David, the man who had made the initial anonymous call to police, that he and Mike had indeed killed Robert, and this was a way of lightening the guilt he felt for being a part of the murder. He also told David that the payment for the hit had come from Mary and that he had taken a percentage for himself before giving the rest to Mike. James repeatedly told David that Mary had solicited him to murder Robert Samuels. When David asked why Mary would want her husband dead, James stated that Mary wanted his life insurance payout and even admitted that she had tried to hire someone once before to carry out the hit, but after paying this unknown man, he didn't actually do the job. That's why she turned to James. She knew him well, and he was dating her daughter Nicole. She could trust him to get the job done. Meanwhile, Around 100 miles north of LA, in a valley in Lake Canyon, Ventura County, James's severely decomposed body was discovered. He had no ID on him, and because of the level of decomposition, investigators were initially unable to identify him. The autopsy report confirmed that the body showed signs of strangulation and a crushed larynx. The medical examiner then managed to obtain a fingerprint eventually by rehydrating one of the fingers and then was able to run the prints and because James had a previous criminal record, they were able to identify him. Investigators immediately made their way to James's apartment and found evidence of phone calls between James and Mike Silver, as well as phone calls from James to Mary. This finding connected the dots for investigators and they discovered that in the days leading up to Robert's murder there were calls from James's phone to Anne Hamley 
Mary's neighbour and close friend. And chillingly, just 30 minutes before Mary had discovered Robert's body and called emergency services, James had called her at the subway shop and then called Mike. It came to light that on the 26th of June 1989, James had told his brother he was frightened and that he was the only person who could quote, burn Mary Ellen. As James had been talking about his remorse for what he had done, as well as suggesting that he was getting ready to go to the police, Mary was confiding in her neighbour, Anne, that she wanted James dead. She told Anne she knew he was thinking about going to the police, and if he did, he definitely disclosed her involvement in the murder. Anne told Mary she thought her partner Paul could probably help. She set the two up to talk about their options, and in the first conversation they had, Mary told Paul that James was blackmailing her for her involvement in the murder. She said she knew how much money she'd received from Robert's life insurance policy, and he wanted in. In the second conversation, Mary told Paul she had originally wanted her husband Robert killed because he had abused Nicole. She added that James also sold drugs to children. During the next conversation, Mary admitted the failed hit she had ordered and paid for on Robert, and in a later conversation, said that although she had paid for the successful hit on Robert, she was annoyed at the sloppy nature of it, adding that she hadn't expected it to be done inside the house, and that there had been blood everywhere. All in all, Mary and Paul had around 10 conversations about the plan to murder James, as well as discussing payment specifics around four times. Before Mary flew out to Cancun, she told Paul that if he killed James before she returned, she would pay him $5,000, as well as writing off a sum of money she had loaned to Anne. Paul said he needed someone to help him, and it was agreed that if he could recruit someone else, then they would also be paid $5,000. Paul presented this proposition to Daryl Edwards, who agreed. Officers had searched Anne's house and found a bag of James's clothes. They questioned her and realised that she was, in fact, one of the last people to see James alive. Detectives knew Anne knew more than she was prepared to reveal, and they needed her to speak in order to understand the full story. After consideration, they decided to offer Anne immunity if she agreed to tell them everything she knew and testify in court. She agreed, and told officers the truth about Mary offering $5,000 each to Paul and Darrell to kill James. On the 26th of January 1990, Mary was arrested and charged on two counts of murder for her role in the deaths of both Robert and James. She was held without bail. At the same time, 
Paul Gall was also apprehended, and five days later, Darrell turned himself in. It was clear to officers that although Paul and Darrell were involved in the execution of James, the real ringleader was Mary. Both men were offered reduced charges if they cooperated and helped detectives with their conviction of Mary. Investigators needed to arrest and question the alleged hitman Mike Silver in order to get a complete picture of exactly what had happened. In a chilling twist, however, Mike was found dead in a murder-suicide where he had first shot his girlfriend and then turned the gun on himself. This was a massive blow to the investigation because with both James and Mike dead, the only immediate witnesses being Daryl and Paul, the two confessed killers and Anne, the former partner of one of them, as well as the fact investigators had no murder weapon or no DNA evidence. This was going to be a tricky case with regards to convincing the jury. In the 1980s, it was unheard of that the mastermind of a double murder could be a woman. Mary was an expert manipulator and incredibly good at convincing people to do her bidding or to believe her innocence. Detectives decided to offer Mary a plea bargain so that she could avoid the death penalty, but she said no. She really believed she would get off and walk free once she told her side of the story. And so, Mary Ellen Samuel's trial began. At the trial, it came out that Mary had attempted to solicit a variety of people on numerous occasions to kill her husband, Robert. Mary's friend and neighbour, Anne Hamley, testified that Mary told her she had tried several times and failed to find someone to kill Robert. However, she was excited when she managed to get James to agree to commit the murder. At the time she got James to agree, he was dating Mary's daughter Nicole, and Mary did actually use that relationship to manipulate James into agreeing, at least partially. She told James that Robert was abusing Nicole. Just over a month before Robert's murder, James said that because Robert was a child molester, he wanted him, quote, taken care of permanently. He then asked his employer, Charles Mandel, if he knew anyone who could, quote, take care of it. Charles is the person who then gave James the phone number for Mike Silver, the man who would eventually murder Robert. Anne also told the court that on the 7th of December 1988, Mary had told her that Robert was dead and that she planned to discover his body in two days' time. It was revealed that at the same time, Nicole had called her friend and said, quote, it's done, in reference to Robert's murder. Anne testified that she also went to Robert's house the night he was found dead and that Mary said she could not believe that, quote, it had finally happened and added that she had given James the money for the hit six months earlier. 
Mary told Anne she was fearful of being found out and said she was afraid to speak because she believed the police had bugged her car, purse and home. The prosecution argued the motive was clear and it was simple, money. Evidence was introduced to show that Mary had collected on several insurance policies after Robert's death, totaling almost a quarter of a million dollars. On top of this, she also sold the Subway store she and Robert co-owned and received $70,000 for it, as well as gaining possession of Robert's car, $6,000 of uncashed payroll checks, $160,000 for refinancing the family home, and a number of other financial gains, totaling nearly $600,000. Mary, however, went on to argue that her financial situation in 1987 was fine, even after her and Robert's separation. The prosecution told the jury that although Mary looked like the average housewife, and as though she would never be capable of such awful crimes, she was an expert manipulator, and that to appear as though she was harmless was her plan all along. They introduced testimony to support Robert had a quote, less than cordial relationship with Mary, had missed a support payment, and had fought with her over her continuing to work at the subway store. The prosecution argued that showed that Mary knew about and was angered by Robert's intention to finalise the divorce and reduce her financial support. This bolstered their theory of her motive. They presented evidence of Mary's spending habits following Robert's death, including the clothes, television and luxury holidays. And they presented a blown-up photograph that Mary had given to Dean Groover, the same Dean Groover whose production company she had invested in and who she'd bought scuba equipment for. Dean Groover, it turned out, was also her lover and he had been gifted a photograph of Mary lying on a bed naked, covered with $20,000 worth of cash. The prosecution presented this to the court as a means of showing Mary's heartlessness towards Robert, who at that point had only been dead a matter of months. It was also shown that Mary had forged Robert's mother's signature as a means of refinancing the home she inherited after his death, as well as providing false and fraudulent information on the related loan documents. More so than the money side of the prosecution's case, more evidence was presented as to the incriminating statements that Mary had made herself. Mary spoke openly about ordering hits and told a friend of hers, Marsha Hutchinson, that if she wasn't careful in her divorce proceedings, then Marsha's husband might decide to put a hit on her. Marsha also told the court that Mary had made statements to her about knowing how to beat a polygraph test. Another friend of Mary's testified that the pair of them had gone out for a few drinks one evening, a few months before Robert's death. She said it wasn't unusual for the two of them to talk about their divorces, 
but she was taken aback when Mary told her she wanted Robert out of her life permanently and in fact needed to borrow $10,000 to hire a hitman. At the time, the friend shrugged this comment off and put it down to being a drunken comment that had no weight to it. She did, however, recall that Mary had mentioned her daughter's boyfriend, who she named as James Bernstein. Mary also spoke openly to James's older brother and sister-in-law in a way that made them think she had ordered Robert's murder. During the trial, the defence argued that during Mary's six-year marriage to Robert, the relationship had been turbulent. Mary claimed that partway through their marriage, Robert had developed a drinking problem and became abusive any time he drank. She said this was the main reason she moved out of the family home in October of 1986. After much discussion and attempt to reconcile. However, we know from other witness interviews that Robert told his sister Susan Mary had one day taken Nicole and left without warning. Mary testified that during the couple's separation period, the couple were able to agree on child and spousal support, custody of Nicole, as well as the general operation of their co-owned subway store. Mary admitted she was considering reconciling, but on learning of the physical and sexual abuse she said Robert had subjected Nicole to, she decided against it. She also said that even on learning of the abuse she said her daughter had been subjected to, she never wanted to kill Robert and she never asked anyone to do it. Nicole waived her right to not incriminate herself and took to the witness stand in her mother's defence. She told the court that one of the employees who had later testified against her mother had been stealing from Subway and therefore couldn't be relied upon. She also went on to deny any involvement in the plot to murder her adoptive father and actually testified in court that Robert had sexually and physically abused her and that she'd moved out of the family home because of this. Nicole testified that Robert had raped her starting when she was 12 years old and by the time she was 15, she had decided to tell her school counsellor. However, when this was looked into, she wasn't able to give the name of the person she had told. She also said that she did speak to friends about everything that was happening. This did not include sexual abuse, but did include physical beatings. Nicole recalled, quote, I didn't feed the dogs correctly and he slapped me on my face and said, does this look good to you? Does this look like something you'd like to eat? Unquote. She said things got worse and just a few days later, he pushed her towards the dog's poo and said, quote, If you're not going to pick it up right away, you can eat it. Unquote. Nicole testified that Robert usually came into her room after he'd been drinking and would be abusive to her by pouring ice on her head and that between the ages of 13 and 16, she was raped eight times. 
She also said that she didn't tell her mother at the time of the abuse because she didn't want her mother and Robert to split up. She testified that although she did tell a number of friends and school counsellor about the abuse, she hadn't reported it to the police. A number of Nicole's former high school friends, who were called as prosecution witnesses, told the court she had asked a number of them to find a gun and spoke of killing Robert. It was also alleged that Nicole had been involved in a plot to steal Robert's car, so his murder would look like a carjacking. Nicole disputed this testimony and told the court that her friends, who said she had altered the crime scene to make it appear as a break-in and struggle, were lying. Robert's sister, Susan Conray, said, quote, I don't believe her. Bob wasn't that type of a person, like mother, like daughter. After all, she is fighting for her mother's life. Unquote. I will say that it's incredibly difficult to verify this information, and we always believe the victims, because victims of abuse rarely lie. However, given the circumstances of this case with regards to Nicole's alleged involvement in Robert's murder, it's difficult to know how much truth there is to any of her claims. This isn't to say that they aren't true, it's just to say that we must take into account the context of this being a murder trial and try to understand how this may add to the events that happened surrounding Robert's death. A witness, Michael Taylor, was also called to the stand and testified that as an employee at the couple's subway store, he and a number of others knew about the murder plans. He said Mary's plans to kill Robert were widely known. He spoke of a conversation he and Nicole had. Quote, she turned around and said, Well, you can tell anyone this. My mom has somebody to kill my dad. Can you get me a gun? We need a weapon. Can you get me a gun? Unquote. Michael said no, he couldn't. He went on to tell the court he couldn't believe what he'd just been asked. Another witness, one of Mary's friends, told the court Mary had told her she had found a hitman. It was someone she met at Denny's, and she was going to pay them $10,000 to kill Robert. She said she would expense it and make the large payment look like some kind of advertising for the subway store. The defence presented evidence that they said proved Mary was framed by Anne Hamley and her boyfriend Paul Gall, both of whom owed her money. They argued that Anne Hamley, as a witness, had no credibility, given the fact she received immunity in exchange for her testimony, so of course she would implicate Mary. They focused heavily on Mary and Nicole's allegations that Robert had abused the two of them for years. When the prosecution called Detective Daly to the witness stand, he said, quote, She said they had a good relationship, no abuse, no smacking around. Unquote. Mary testified that her six-year marriage had been horrific. She had left to protect Nicole from the beatings and rapes, she told the court she had awful bruises and physical scars to prove the abuse and said that her neighbour had seen her with a black eye one time. However, 
It was later proven that the black eye she was referring to was from a cosmetic surgical procedure. The prosecutor also brought a letter in that Mary had written to Robert when she left him. That letter had no mention of the abuse and alleged that the reason she hadn't written about any of the abuse or rapes was that they weren't true. Another police officer was called to the witness stand by the prosecution and testified that Mary's behaviour on the night of Robert's murder was odd. She seemed cold and wasn't emotional or upset. She seemed totally unaffected by Robert's death. He added that whilst he was searching the house for evidence, Mary touched his head and told him she liked, quote, bald guys, clearly flirting. With regards to James's murder, the prosecution also called Anne Hamley to testify. She said that although she did help to arrange James's murder, she had attempted to distance herself. Quote, I told her that Paul wanted to get the job done and he wanted to use my car. I didn't want him to use my car and she wanted to get him killed. She had to have her car used. Unquote. When asked if Mary agreed to using her car and said yes she did. This showed that Mary had clear knowledge about the murder ahead of time and had helped to facilitate and cover it up. In an attempt to discredit Anne, the defence argued that she owed Mary money and was therefore not a reliable witness. Mary stated that James never threatened or blackmailed her and that she did not want him dead, let alone conspire to have him killed. Mary testified she felt terrible upon learning James was dead. However, she failed to come up with any reasonable explanation as to why, just days after Robert had been killed, James had taken out a life insurance policy on himself and named Nicole, his then-girlfriend and Mary's daughter, as the beneficiary. Paul Gall and Daryl Edwards were both convicted and sentenced to 15 years for their part in James's murder. Mary was found guilty of both murders and it took just two days for the sentence to be delivered. The verdict form relating to count one read, quote, We the jury in the above entitled action, having found the defendant, Mary Ellen Samuels, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree and the special circumstance of multiple murder, to be true as related to count one of the information, hereby fix the penalty at death. Unquote. The same was said for count two. California reinstated the death penalty in 1977, and Mary is one of only 21 women currently on death row awaiting execution there. As you can imagine, at the time of sentencing, the media jumped on the fact that Mary was a woman and had masterminded two murders. She was dubbed by the media as the Green Widow when they discovered how much money she'd spent of insurance payouts and inheritance after Robert's death. 
Mary has ever since been the subject of documentaries, news articles, and now this podcast discussing the shock at the fact a woman with no previous criminal record or reported tendency towards violence could be the ringleader in a series of fraudulent activities and murders. With all of this focus on Mary, it's difficult to find out much about Robert Samuels or even James Bernstein, two men who, because of their relationships to Mary Ellen Samuels, were not only killed and mistreated, but, in Robert's case, murdered in cold blood for greed and power, and unfortunately forgotten by the news outlets and the public learning of the story of the Green Widow. This shouldn't be Mary's story. It should be Robert Samuels. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James. Ever wonder what terrible thing happened on this day in true crime history? My name is Karina Bemisterfer, writer and host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast that dives into what murder took place on today's date in history. With over 500 episodes about serial killers, murderers, cults, and cold cases, there is always something new for you to enjoy. Morning Cup of Murder is the perfect addition to your morning routine. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, start your day with a morning cup of murder. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen, and come say hi on social media at Morning Cup of Murder. Oh, and remember, stay safe.